Today I want to give some attention to really something I think Pastor Burgos, when he was first speaking, he was just saying how many of you are grateful for the blessings that we have in America. Like we can come in here and we don't have to worry about guns being put to our head or people trying to track us after we leave the meeting. Grateful for that? Most people said, amen, amen. I'm grateful for that too. But the message I want to challenge us with today is this. We have to remember what our mission is. Remember your mission. We have to remember the mission that God has put us on. Can you say that with me? Remember the mission. Remember the mission. Remember the mission. What is that mission? As you sit and you come to a service, come to a Sunday service, hear a little music, inspire your heart. Yeah, that's, that's to get a little something in the tank so I can make it through another week. Hopefully I'll hear a little word that'll meet some need that I have so that I can know God loves me and I can carry on. All good and has its place. But there is a mission that we're supposed to be on. I was reminded of it as I was uh, talking with somebody in the church this past week and they were telling me a story of a guy who um, really done something so heroic and so, in my eyes, just so encapsulates and gives a picture of what our lives are supposed to be that I was, it just, it, it like stopped me all week and just made me contemplate, am I on my mission? Am, am, I, am I focused? The guy's name is John Harper. Most of you will never remember the name that I just said, and I hope you remember his story. So John Harper was a Scottish preacher that in 1912 decides he was called uh, by the Moody Bible Institute at the time to come and hold a series of meetings. He was a, a preacher. God's hand was on his life. And he had been at Moody uh, three months before. For three months, like he came and he just spoke. And there was such a blessing on his preaching that he actually was there for three months. They just said, would you please stay? God's actually moving. So for three months he stays. And they said, we'd like for you to carry on. He had a little daughter. His wife had passed away. They said, would you mind, could you go back, get your daughter, and, and come back and continue preaching? So he said, sure. He goes back, and he thought he would treat his daughter. The maiden voyage of the Titanic happened uh, in April of uh, 1912. And so he boards the ship with his daughter and his sister, because uh, his wife had passed away. So it's his daughter, his sister, who was helping to tend to his little girl. They all get on the boat, and of course we all know the Titanic, what happens, the, hits an iceberg, the ship starts to go down, and this guy makes sure that his daughter is taken to a lifeboat and put on the lifeboat with his sister. And he says, I, yeah, I've, got, I've got to do this. So he puts her out and says, I'll see you again soon, later, I'll see you again. But he begins to go around the ship and he begins to say, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Many of you are going to go down with a ship. Do you know him? Repent. Repent of your sin. You're about to meet your maker. If you're not right with him, Jesus is the way that you're made right with him. Will you make it right with him? And he runs from one person to another frantically because he knows what's at stake. Eternity. It's not cold, frigid waters that people are about to plunge into. They're about to plunge into eternity. And so he does what he can. He stays with the ship as long as he can. He's trying to get a hold of hearts the best way that he can. And then he jumps into the water with a life preserver. And he starts swimming around from one person to another. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Will you trust him? You're about to die. Will you, will you repent? Will you, will you hold on to him? He'll save you. Not from the plunging, not from the, the cold waters. He will keep you into eternity. 
Do you know him? He comes up to a guy who is just sitting there holding on to some floatable. And, and as the guy is there, he, he hears him like making ways around to people. And he comes to him and he, he confronts him. Sir, do, do you know Jesus? I don't. Well, would you repent of your sins? He loves you. He came. He died. He tries to give him the gospel in short order. And then waters take him away, and the guy ends up coming back. And he's like, did, did you receive him yet? And the guy, no. And with that, there was somebody who was having a hard time. He takes his preserver off, gives it to him, passes into eternity. A few years later, they're having a memorial. And they, at Moody, they named a hall after him. And at the, at the hall, uh, they're just remembering this man and the, the heroicism, spiritual heroicism of what he did. Others might think it's foolish, but spiritually, he knew, he knew his eternity. He knew there was security. But he, as he tracked from one person to another, there was a guy who stood up and said, I was his last convert. I was, I was the one in the water before he sank. Then he came repeatedly to me and said, do you know him? Will you trust him? Will you repent? Have you repented yet? And he said, since I have, and I've been changed. And I came because I'm so grateful for this man and, and what, he, what he proclaimed, how he challenged me. Incredible story. It's inspirational, isn't it? Here's another story. There's a guy who's on our board. His name is Burl Kane. And he's a warden. He used to be a warden at most infamous prison in America, Angola. Many of you have heard about it. Those of you that are visiting might not know about it. It was the worst prison in America. And this guy was brought on to take over the, the wardenship of the prison. And his first week there, this was a prison where people in Louisiana, they don't, they don't have a problem murdering people. Capital punishment is just something in the past that they did without much discretion. And so he comes in, he's there, and one of his first things that he has to experience in the prison is somebody being uh, executed. Next morning, he picks up the phone, calls his mother, and says, Mom, you know, he said, how's it going, son? How's everything? You're first, how's the first week going? I've been praying for you. Well, uh, you know, I had to be a part of an execution yesterday. You're part of an execution. Somebody was sent into eternity. Yeah, Ma. Please tell me that you took time to, before they were sent into eternity, you, you, you know about God. Please tell me that you took time to tell them about what they're about to face. And he's like, Mom, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a warden. Like, how, how can I do that? Like, I, that's not my job. Not your job? You allowed somebody to potentially pass into eternity, eternally separated from God, and you didn't use your position to give him hope? She rebukes him. What is wrong with you? How could you do that? How hard has your heart become? It was a check not from his mother. It was a check from God. He had forgotten his mission. It's an easy thing to do. One story stirs our heart toward, wow, you know, that, that's, that's special. I'd like to be like that guy. And then we hear another story and we kind of go, oh, that guy, he needs to wake up. But I would say to you, there's probably more of us in the room like Burl Kane than John Harper. Remember your mission. You're here today living and breathing because God has had mercy on you. And if you're here today, some of you, many of you, a lot of visitors, I can't assume that all of you that are here know Jesus. 
But here's the truth. One day, the sea of life that we're in, we're all, we're all sinking into eternity. Question is, do you know him? That's our mission. That's my mission today. I want to give focus today just for a few minutes, not just reminding you of the mission, but what the responsibility is that comes along with you knowing him. You know him in part so that you can make him known. You're here to be his mouthpiece. People over here in the band, they can say, no, my part is just to play the, play the bass. My part is just to play the violin. My part is just to keep the timing with the drums. Like that's, that's my part of just serving God. No. Guys at the soundboard over there, no, I just got to make sure the music has its place so that when people come in here, they can have the best sound they can possibly have. Ladies over here, same thing. Let's keep this thing in order. John putting PowerPoints up. We can all kind of hide behind giftings that we have and just use those giftings as a way to contribute to the cause. And it all has its place. Please don't get me wrong. I'm, my place right now in this moment isn't to put a PowerPoint up. Isn't I, I wish I could keep timing with drums. My, my charge today from God is to remind you of something from his word. But that's not necessarily my mission. My mission is to go into this world and to proclaim the hope of Jesus. Just because I'm here trying to encourage you so that you can be on mission to go do and fulfill the purpose of what God has set you apart to do. The job of the church is to build you up. My job is not to be the evangelists of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. My job is to charge the evangelist. My job, and every one of you, by the way, has a voice. Every one of you has a life. Every one of you is called to go outside the doors of this church and proclaim the hope that there is in Jesus. And to remind people, and to remind people, there is a day of reckoning that is coming where God will honor and respect whether somebody wants to trust him or not. And if somebody chooses not to trust him, there isn't a person in this room that fully appreciates the weight of what that separation from God is going to mean. It's my hope today that we wake up to that. So, what's our mission? Our mission is to preach the gospel. Jesus said before he ascended, Matthew 28, go, go into all the world. Go into the world and tell them about me. Let me remind you, if you're a believer in here today, and you've forgotten your mission. Your mission is to not make money. Your mission is to not have 2.5 kids in a house with a picket fence. Your mission isn't to have some incredible retirement that you can enjoy the latter part of your life as if that's some piece of heaven. It's not even close. It's not even a poor shadow of what's to come. Your mission is not to find happiness in marriage. There's, I'm married. I've got kids. I live in a house. Like it's, it's fine. It's not my mission. My mission is to live to declare who Jesus is. Your mission is to go into the world that God has put you in. Are you, a, are you part of some hedge fund? You're not there to make money or to make money for people. You're there to use your position of influence to help people understand that there is a God who lords over their finances that's far more concerned than their finances. He's concerned with their eternal well-being. And you're positioned for that. You're a teacher. It's not to teach arithmetic. Well, we can't separate church, you know, separation of church and state. Okay, whatever. There are some laws that are higher than the law of the land. What's your mission to go and to tell people? Well, how will they hear unless somebody tells them? 
Right? Doesn't it say in Romans, it says, the 10th chapter, the 14th verse, it says, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That preaching, by the way, is not me here in this moment. Like, if the hope is that people will come into the Brooklyn Tabernacle so that they can be preached to, you're wrong. I'm trying to help you to see. Wake up. You are the voice and the mouthpiece of God. Paul's making an appeal to people in Rome saying, how will people, how will people be saved? How will they know the love of God? How will they know that? You, each one of you. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how young you are. I don't care what kind of degree you have or don't have. I don't care how theologically sound you think you are and that you've got to become a seminarian to to be able to preach the gospel. No, it's not that complicated. But unless somebody begins to see themselves as the preacher, how can anyone preach unless they're sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet. Look down at your feet for a second. Look down at your feet. What do feet represent? Feet represent the path that each one of us walk on. Feet represent, are they beautiful? I don't know. Some of you need a manicure. But those feet, you better believe, are beautiful. They're beautiful to those that haven't even yet heard the hope of Jesus. Your life intersecting their life is something that is a beautiful thing. It's something ordained by God. Your days have been ordained by Jesus to go into this world and to fulfill the mission that he's put you here to do. What's the mission? To proclaim the hope of Jesus. It says this in Ephesians. It says that you and I, you and I, we together collectively are the expression of God's handiwork. He created us in Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for us in advance to do. What are those good works? To take your life, to allow your feet, as you trust God, to be led into the world that he's called you to, preordained, pre-established works that he's appointed for you to proclaim the hope of Jesus. That's something that you have to be mindful of because it's like he's saying, I've gone before you, I've appointed you, I've put in you my word, and I'm allowing you as you trust me to go to places that no preacher in a church can ever go for the purpose of spreading that hope into a world that so desperately needs to hear it. God has called you. Your commission, your mission is to proclaim. And it's to proclaim, not in like, do I have to go to Bible school? How does this work out? Do I have to wait to get some ordination from some pulpit to preach? No. You've already been commissioned by Jesus. You've been ordained by him. Go. Go into the highways. Go into the byways. Help people that don't know him to see him. Let your light so shine before men that they would take a step back and say, who is this God that these people represent and speak so incredibly about? This is our mission. You can't forget it. How do you know if you've forgotten it? Do you know statistically, if I just say there's thousands of people in this room, statistically, 80% of you have never told anyone about Jesus in the past six months. That's a statistic. The American church, 80% of people have never, I'm not talking about, hey, sister, isn't Jesus good? No, that's, that's, you do that to encourage each other so that you can find strength to go fulfill the mission. The mission is 
to tell the lost about Jesus, not to circle the wagons and have a bless me club. We have all eternity. We're going to know blessing. And church is so important because we do get encouragement. We need it. But it's for the strengthening of you, fulfilling the mission. That's outside the doors of the church. That's not on me. That's on you. I'm just saying, you got to be careful of like, yeah, I go to church and that's the pastor's job. No, no, I'm, I'm being very clear today. It's not the pastor's job. The pastor's job is to build you up, is to remind you of the things that are true so that you can go do the commissioning and the fulfillment of that mission that he's called you to. It gets a little quiet because now I'm starting to get in your kitchen. But guess whose kitchen I'm really in? Mine. Because if anybody can hide behind the calling and the fulfillment of the mission, it could be a pastor. I'm doing the Lord's work. Really? Who's the last person I led to the Lord outside the doors of this church? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I mean, don't, it's, I, I can only do what I can do. But do I not live in a neighborhood? Do I not have people in my family? Do I not have friends from the past that don't know him? Am I aggressively, actively fulfilling the mission of God in my life? I don't know. I had to take a hard look and that story, it sobered me, and it made me stop and say, God, am I on mission? A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, a pastor's intensive here, and one of the people that came to speak at the pastor's intensive is a guy named Steve Rhodes. Some of you might know him. He used to be a pastor here. He was the CFO of our church, and now he's the vice president of the Billy Graham Association. And he told a story that just, it, it made me laugh, but then it made me cry. This was his story. So Steve, he loves God. He's a bright guy on top of it. He went to Wheaton. He went to Dallas Theological. He's got all the credentials that somebody in ministry should have. And now he's the vice president of an organization whose mission and statement is to go into the world and proclaim the hope of Jesus. And somebody had challenged him and said, do you even know how to give the gospel? Oh, yeah, I know how to give the gospel. I mean, I've been to seminary. I went to Wheaton. Like, I've been around the things of God. My dad was a pastor. Like, yeah, of course, I got this. Yeah, well, why don't you record yourself giving the gospel? What do you mean? Well, act like your phone, put it on video, and act like your phone is a soul that doesn't know Jesus. See, see how efficiently you can give the gospel. He said he went on for nine minutes, and by the time he was done and he had watched it, he was like, I'm clueless. I'm clueless. And he literally had to, he, like, before God, just stop and be like, God, you, you, you've got to help me here. Because if I don't even know how to articulate the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The hope of anyone passing into an eternal reality of knowing God in the fullness of his love begins with the gospel proclamation. If you can't proclaim the gospel in a way that somebody gets it, what hope will there be for the person knowing God? Not that this is all about us. All we can do is be people that try to do the best that we can, and God's Spirit is the one who works in us and through us to bring about salvation. So I'm not trying to make this academic. I'm just saying, how many of you can actually give the gospel? If pastors have a hard time being able to synthesize what the gospel is and communicating it, please don't tell me that the average person sitting in the pew just does it more efficiently and effectively. I hope that's the case, but there's a saying, as the shepherd goes, so the sheep go. I'm grateful for the seats that are filled in this place today, but if you have an empty seat beside you, it's my prayer that God would use your life to help fill it next week. So I want to take a second and just try to synthesize and remind you of what the gospel is. 
I don't have a lot of points that you'll forget. I want to just make four. And this is, this is the approach I've had over the years sit down and synthesize in my own life. This is how I'm sitting talking to somebody that doesn't know Jesus. This is how I go about it. I've got to keep in mind that God is love. And I've got to keep in mind four things. That's the first. Second thing I've got to do is I've got to keep in mind that that person doesn't love God. They love themselves. That's what sin is. The third thing is they're stuck in it. And so God, to try to help them out... Expressing his love, sent his son into the world. Jesus is the bridge back to the love of God. Bridging self-love back to the real thing. And then the fourth is the responsibility of the person to turn. I can't make somebody turn. That's the work of God in their life. But I got to call them to turn. If you go through, if you go through the great uh, sermons preached in the New Testament and you listen to what Jesus said, it was always repent. Turning is repenting. It's turning away from you loving yourself and trusting him to help you love him better. So those are the four things that I keep in mind. I just want to start. I want to use some scripture here just to build. I'm going to actually, there are people in here that don't know Jesus. So you can actually listen to the way that I'm going to speak to them. And hopefully the way that I'm going to do this, you can for yourself begin to think, how do I synthesize this for me? So the first is this comes from 1 John, 4th chapter, the 8th verse. And it's a scripture that I stand on when I consider who a person is. I, I'm, when I look at their life and I look at all that they've been through, the backdrop, the context of what I'm even going to say to them is God is love. The mess that we see in this world, if you're here today and you don't know God and you look around and you say, why is this world such a mess? It's a mess because we've made a choice to not rest in his love. But he didn't make this world in a way that was unloving. He made it perfect. He made it pure. He made it something that would add value in life. It's something that he created to express his love for us. God loves us. God is filled with love. Oh yeah, well, why is it such a mess? Well, the point would be this. In love, God does not force his hand on anybody. He will never force his hand. If you're an unbeliever here today, he's not going to force his hand on you. He's not going to make you love him. If he did, it would no longer be love. If any of you have ever been abused, when somebody imposed their will upon you, it didn't feel like love. All of us have had others impose their will on us. That's never been something we've been like, oh, this is such a blessing. We're always like, are you serious? How dare you do that to me? No, get away from me. It makes us recoil, and God knows that about us. So in his desire to create us so that we'd receive his love, he created us with the potential to not respond to that love. That's really important. Listen to me. If you're not paying attention and you're talking to somebody about the love of God, you've got to begin with God loves them, but in his love, he gives them a chance to make a choice. There would be no choice without love. And God gives people the ability to make a choice. And so what are the choices that people have made? Starting with Adam and Eve all the way down to you sitting in this seat today. We've all made the choice to say, not my way, not yours, God. I don't want anybody telling me what to do with me. The second verse that I would put up there is this. It comes from Romans, the third chapter, the 23rd verse. It says, everyone has sinned. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. 
And if you're new to church and you say, what is sin? Sin is just this. It's me doing life, my terms, my way to get what I think is best for me. It's not always shaking my fist at God saying, I want nothing to do with you. It's just me trying to make sense of a broken world with a broken mind and a broken understanding of how to adapt to try to figure my way through it the best way that I can. But anytime I do that without God, it's me doing life, my terms, my way to get what I think is best for me which simply put is sin. It's just God saying to God, I'm going to do this my way. I don't know if you have a way. I don't even care about your way. What I care about is what I want. But it's a little bit more nefarious than just me trying to fumble my way through life. There's a part of me that wants no one ruling over me. So I have a power that's inside of me that will hold on to things that will destroy me and destroy everybody around me. Any person that you're going to minister to Any person that you're going to minister to has got that issue inside of them. They're confused. They're trying to sort through life. I don't care how bad they've been abused. I don't care what the circumstances are. There is something that's inside of them that will say, no, no, no. I want to do it this way. And so much of the time, how do you know it's a real power? Because we hold on to things that actually destroy us. We hold on to things that destroy the people that we love. I remember my dad, when I was a little kid, he would bounce in and out of the house. And every time he would leave, he would cry. And I'd be like, why are you crying? Well, because I don't want to be hurting you. Well, why are you, why are you hurting us? Why are you going to go have all these affairs with these other women? Oh, because I just can't help it. No, he could help it. He just did what he wanted to do. And it didn't matter the kind of pain that it brought to everybody else. Because that power wasn't something he could control. It was a force that drove him. I'm sure with all these people sitting in here, if you don't feel love in life, if you don't have a sense of like, I, here's one other thing about the love of God. How do I know that God is loving? Because there's not a person in this room being made in the image of God that doesn't long to be loved. Everybody here longs for love. And we'll do whatever we can to try to find it. And if we can't find it, we'll do everything that we can to try to mask the pain that comes from feeling unloved. And in our sin, oh, we can hold on to stuff to try to mask the pain that just destroys us. You ever see somebody that does drugs, somebody that drinks alcohol? I got a lot of different addictions in my family. Men that just, they they can't handle whatever the pain of life has been, so they just escape into a bottle. But that bottle that they escape into has a price tag for everybody that's in the family. Why do they keep doing it? Would you please stop drinking? You've heard Pastor Simba say, his dad didn't just drink. His dad beat his mother. His dad beat him. And then he would, next morning, after he would sober up, he would cry over, Jimmy, please forgive me. Well, why would he do that? Because sin has power. And see, when you're talking to somebody, I wish I could, if there were unbelievers in here, I wish I could sit and talk with each one of you because I would be able, with a few questions, to reduce in your life how sin has its hook in you. You might deny that there's a God of love, but you cannot deny the second truth that is, the Bible proclaims. You are stuck in your sin. It has power over your life, and you are enslaved to it. And if you think that's not true, at the beginning of the year, when you want to reset and start into your New Year's resolutions, I'll just ask you, how long is that going to last? There's nobody in here disciplined enough to discipline sin out of your life. That's why we come to the third point. There's a Savior. For God so loved the world. God so, God so loved you that he sent the most precious gift that he has 
into this world that you would find the help and relief that he longs to give you from the sin that he never created you for. For God so loves the world that he sent his one and only son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to be saved by the world. Some of you might be sitting here listening to this saying, oh, you know, what happens if I, if I, if I don't accept Jesus? Well, you make a choice to turn away from the love of God. You move in the direction in life that you want. But God clearly is moving in the direction of wanting to help you. Jesus said, I come seeking to save the lost. I wonder in your world, how do you know that this love has been made alive in you? You become like the one that came for you, don't you? As Christians, we're not just followers and principle of Jesus. As Christians, we're people whose life has been altered because his love has been shed abroad in our hearts and that love becomes like his. It's supposed to pulsate through our soul in the same way that it did his, that it would drive us to do what he did. And was Jesus not on a mission? Did he not come to seek and save the lost? Did he not come and find you in the hole that you dug for yourself and rescue you out of it? God in his love, is aggressive. Are you aggressive today in seeking out and saving those that are lost on his behalf? Well, God sent his son into the world. And here's, here's three things. If you're going to focus, I would encourage you to focus on these three things. When you're trying to explain who Jesus is to a person, there's effectively three things that Jesus came to do. The first is he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came into the world to give us a picture because everything is so polluted and fallen and we can get so legalistic and regimented in the way that we view life. Well, I, the, the Ten Commandments is a reflection of God. It is, but it's sterile in and of itself. Jesus came to be the living expression of the law of God. And he came to express it with mercy and with compassion. He is longing to make alive in you and I the heart that's behind the law. Well, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? If you've seen me, you've seen him. Did he come into the world condemning the world? He just, the, the verse says here, Jesus, these are his words. God didn't send, the father didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. He sent his son into the world to save the world. He loves the world. He's not trying to judge it. If you're a judgmental Christian making people feel condemned for what they do, are you representing accurately the heart of this invisible God? I hope you're representing him well. But you can get caught up in law. You can get caught up in legalism like the Pharisees who were fighting against the actual living representation of the Father's love. They're the ones that crucified him. So in your legalism and your desire to, well, I got this, I'm going to do this like in my strength and I'm going to do it in a way where I feel good about me, you can do it in a way that undermines the gospel. I pray that's not you. But we're all susceptible to that. But that's not the heart of God. Jesus came into the world to show people his heart. Do you know every healing that he did was an expression of the Father's love saying, I hate sin and what it produces. I want to reverse the effect. Somebody whose heart was captured by demonic realities and a heart that's possessed by demonic things, Jesus came and set free. Why? Because the heart wasn't made for demonic realities. The heart was made for his spirit. Why would he cast out demonic realities so that what sin has produced could be misplaced and displaced with the reality of his living love within? Jesus came in practical ways to touch lives, to show people. There's not a God who's 
condemning you, fighting against you. There's a God who in his love is reaching out to try to infiltrate your world in personal ways to break you so that you'll trust him. A a woman in Samaria, in a place where Jews should have never gone, that they cursed the people and said that they were effectively trash. Jesus went into the middle of it and found a woman who was caught up in multiple positions and acts of adultery, and he, he met her. He, he went on a mission into the middle of a war zone, spiritually speaking, from, a, from a, a, a Jewish perspective. He went into the heart of it, into the heart of darkness, and said, no, the Father cares about you. Has he done that for you? Has he not in practical ways demonstrated his love in a way that has captured your heart? If you're a Christian today, I know that that's true. It's his loving kindness that's brought you to a place of turning from your way. It's your job to help people see Jesus in that kind of light. So he's come to show the heart of the Father. But then he also came to show people. You ever ask somebody if they're good? Last time we did a membership class, I started off the class and it was the first one. I go, so everybody who thinks they're good, just put your hand up. And there were probably 30% of the people, 40% of the people put their hand up. And I was like, whoa, we got to do some teaching here at the church. I didn't say that out loud, but I said, if you put your hand up, stand up. And so people kind of proudly stand up, and I go, so you think you're good? And they're like, yeah. Against what standard? Hitler? Genghis Khan? Alexander the Great? Like, where, where do you compare yourself to to come up with the conclusion that you're good? The Bible says there's nobody good. There's nobody good. And as a Christian, hopefully, we, we're on the same page. There's, there's nobody that's good. And where people struggle to see that, all you have to do is say, Jesus came to be the expression of the law, the living expression of the law. He fulfilled every part of the law. You don't have to try to convict somebody of their sin. The one who's going to judge you is Jesus, and he was perfect in all that he did. Are you good next to him? This is important because people won't turn from their sin until they begin to see the gap between them and what's truly good. If you want somebody to begin, you want the Spirit of God to use your life to effectively begin to help people break so that they can receive a Savior, if, if they think they're good, they will never see their need for salvation. So Jesus came to show the heart of God's love, but he came in a way to say, this is what living in humanity should look like. It's perfection. People beat him. People hung him on a cross. What was his response? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Not judge them, not blast them. Forgive him. What was in him came out of him. Last time you were squeezed like that, where somebody persecuted you and did you wrong, was, was that the response that came out of you? Or did you have a little malice, which was like, you know what? I want to go Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's naturally what's in all of us. But Jesus came, and he lived it out, and he said, this is going to be the standard that you're going to be received or rejected by. Are you perfect? Most people don't have to be convinced that they're perfect. They just need to be reminded that Jesus is the standard by which their lives are measured. And once somebody sees that, then you can begin to lead them into, what was the third reason Jesus came? To do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. There is a God who's fully love, but there is a God in his love who is fully holy. And that God is longing for relationship. That God is longing to bring somebody to him. But if he embraces something that is stained and soaked by sin, how will he ever have a relationship? It'll compromise his very nature. He can't undo who he is. You have to make people see, like as much as he loves you, if you're not like him, there's a problem. 
How is a loving God going to receive you into eternity? You think the, the, the balance of the scales are going to weigh out in such a way that the good will outweigh the bad, and that God who still sees the bad is going to be able to wink at it and receive you? He can't. He's holy. And you better hope that he's holy. And you better hope that he never changes. Because if he does, everything unravels. So how do you make sense of that dilemma? There's only one way that you can, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came into the world to live the life that you and I couldn't live. He came to live perfectly, and he did. He challenged people, any of you, prove to me, show me the sin that you can hold me accountable for. You can't, because I haven't. And he lived perfect for what reason? Because he was going to go to a cross to make an exchange. On a cross, he was going to take our sin. And this is so important. Listen, you have to be able to explain this to somebody. You can't just quote somebody a scripture and hope that they, they get it. There's power in the word of God. But helping somebody to get it, is there, there's some value to that. It's not all that it is, but to help somebody go, wait, I'm trying to make sense. God's holy and I'm not. So how is he going to bridge that? He lived perfectly and he exchanged a perfect account for an imperfect account. That's what the bridge is about. That's what the cross is about. And it freely is extended to you to receive. Will you trust him for his righteousness? You got to challenge people. He's extending to you. He's reaching out to you. He, in his perfection, he wants to receive you and he wants to take from you all of your mess and give you something that will allow you to have a relationship with him, to be embraced by him. People want to know the love of God. The only way you can know that love is if you're embraced by it. Well, how do you get embraced? You got to get rid of that record. That record is done with on a cross. But there's a second part to that cross, and it's this. God hates sin. For those of you that have a low view of sin, let me just say this. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus endured the punishment that you and I deserve because of the hatred that God has toward sin. He hates it. He can't receive it. He won't receive it. And he will judge it. And Jesus put himself on a cross in a position that would allow him to take the judgment that you and I deserve. That's amazing. That's wonderful. That's incredible. That deserves a moment where we can say, God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for keeping from us what we deserve. You kept from us judgment. Thank you, God. You want to talk about a picture of love? That's amazing. And having offered those truths to somebody, what do you do with that? Well, and Mark, the first chapter, 15th verse, it's just Jesus. Jesus is preaching, and he's just saying, repent and believe. It's, it's how we start the Christian life, and it's how we walk in the Christian life. Repentance is something that you have to call people to. Most Christians feel uncomfortable to do that. Why? Because it's too invasive. It's like you're, you're, you're asking me to let go of me. You're asking me to acknowledge that I'm wrong. Well, there's only one that's right, and his name is God. You're not right, I'm not right, and God's not playing some mind game with you like, okay, I'll try to meet you where you are, and I'll, actually, I'll go along with your warped reality. You're not right. I'm right. Will you acknowledge you're wrong? See, repentance, the turning starts with, I'm making a mess of this. My wife was telling me a couple of weeks ago she was praying with somebody after a service, and the person had lost everything. She went down a list, and it was overwhelming how many things they had lost. And my wife goes, so you're a Christian? And we're like, yeah, what do you mean by that? Well, have you been changed by the power of God? Has God's love invaded your life? Are you, are you a different person because his love has been shed abroad in your life? She's like, I go to church. I've been going to church for a long time. No, no, but have you been changed? So you've got to figure out where people are. Just because somebody goes to church, you can't give them the benefit of the doubt. 
The only way somebody is a Christian isn't because they've been baptized, isn't because they take communion. The only way somebody's a Christian is if their life has been transformed by the power of God, that his presence has now come and taken up residence within someone. But the only way that that can happen, and I'm done, is it has to start with, I'm wrong. I love my way, and my way produces a mess. And so my wife gets down to the brass tacks with this woman, and she says, so have you surrendered? No, I read the Bible. No, no, no. Have you surrendered? I pray. Is prayer surrendered? No, no, no. You actually have to acknowledge that you don't want to control your life anymore, that what you're doing is actually making a mess with your control. Will you stop controlling your life? And she goes, well, then who would I trust? Jesus. I'm not giving up my control to anyone. What? But isn't that the story of all of our lives in different ways? We can start off surrendering and then want to take back control as we walk down the path. But all life begins with, no, no, my way is wrong. My way makes me lose life. My way cuts me off from love. God, I can acknowledge that. I'll humble myself and say it's true. And then I'll turn from it and say, God, please forgive me, which is what repentance is. It's just a change of direction. You're encouraging people to change, stop loving themselves, and start allowing themselves as they look to God and open up their heart to allow his love to help them and change them. Repentance is just saying, Turn from your way and trust in his. But then you have to believe. Repent and believe. Who are we believing in? Jesus, the expression of God's love in our lives and in in the most personal way, trusting him for whatever that means for the need at hand. He loves you today. He wants to help you. And the need that we have as believers here is our lives should be on fire with this truth. This, this should be the thing that drives us into the world. This is our mission, to go proclaim this message. I know so many of you know this message, and I know so many of you are like, yeah, thank you for reminding me again of what this life is about. But you can't remind yourself enough about it, especially if you're not going out to proclaim it. Then something has been lost in translation. If this isn't capturing you, if this isn't motivating you, if this isn't compelling you and driving you into the world then you're more of a Burl Cain than you are a John Harper. Remember your mission. Now, my job today is just to remind you of the word of God. But I can't, I can't with words and with whatever expression I have, I can't like make this word come alive in you. That's the spirit of God's job. That's his work. The only thing I can do why do people not go into the world? They're either asleep, they're lethargic, and they're just living off the blessings which are starting to choke out life, or they're just living in fear. I care more about what my boss who signs my paycheck is going to say to me than Jesus who holds my life in his hand. Whatever the fears are, I know this. The Bible says in First John, fourth chapter, 18th verse, It says that his perfect love casts out all fear. Here's my hope, and I'm done. I want this church, those of you that know Jesus, I want us to live in such a way that we're emboldened, impassioned, driven by the love of God, by the mercy of God into this world to proclaim the hope of Jesus. That's, I'm preaching to myself today, God, would you do that afresh in me? I have my own restrictions, my own limitations, but God, if you would baptize me afresh in your love, everything would change. We're going to take a second and just ask God to help us. But that's a message for the church. 
here's a message to those of you that have come and heard this truth. You've now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, if you've never trusted in him, it's now on you. God, in his love and his mercy, brought you here today because he wanted to remind you of the hope that there is in him. The love that you can know will be made real to you. But you got to stop loving yourself. You got to stop loving your way. You got to repent and you got to believe. If that's you today and you're like, that's, that's me. And, and my heart was being stirred even as you were saying it. And I don't want to leave here the same way that I came in. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm not going to ask you to come forward here. But I am going to challenge you to do this. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. If Jesus can hang naked on a cross so that he could take your sin from you, can you not? And there's, there's a reason that he asked you to do this. Publicly stay, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust you. You're breaking off. You're throwing off all the restrictions of you and your self-love. And as you stand before him, you're saying, God, just you now. I get it. I don't want me anymore. I don't even care what anybody thinks. What I care about is I want to know who you promised to be. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to stand up today. Right where you are. And that takes boldness. That takes courage. That takes, that takes faith. Is there anybody here today that would say, I don't know him, but I want to know him. I know about his love, but I want it to change me. I want it to grip me. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to know him. I'll give you a second to consider it. It's a weighty decision. It's not something that you make flippantly. I'll assume that so many of you are believers. And that's a good thing. But here's what I would like to pray now. If, like me, in hearing that story of John Harper, contrasting it against Burl Kane, you say, you know what? I need to be more like John. I need God to stir my heart with affection. This really is a word for everybody, but you have to have faith to respond to it. So I'm not just going to generally pray over your life. If you today want the love of God to fill you afresh, that you would be compelled to go into the highways and the byways of the world with the feet that God's given you, be faithful to proclaim that gospel wherever he would take you. I want you to stand right now. I'm standing, not because I'm holding a mic. I'm standing because this is my heart cry. God knows it. God, you see the people who are standing. You see, like me, their desire is that you would command their hearts with your love, that it would strip them of fear, that it would strip them of inhibition, and that it would embolden them, it would emblazon them, God, to go into the world to preach Jesus. Father, I thank you today for my friends that are standing with me, God, Longing, God, for you to do something new, something fresh. God, we're grateful for all the ways in the past you've used our lives to reach out and to touch people. It's not like you haven't done things, God. You've done things. I know you've even done great things. But, God, the day that we live in is far too dark. We need to see the power of God come and show up 
and you've called us co-laborers. You're going to show up through the lives of your people. So God, we come to you this morning. And we put ourselves before a throne of grace, not just for our sake, God. We're not coming because we need something personal. We need something personal, God. We need your love to fill us afresh, but God, we're asking for it, that your name would be glorified. We're asking for it, Lord, that the world that so desperately needs to see hope would begin to find it in the love of Jesus. God, that's a message that you've given us. That's a charge that you put before us, and we have to be faithful to go. But God, we can't do it out of rope or obligation. God, we have to do it because your spirit, Lord, stirs us in a way where we have your heart, Jesus. You've given us your spirit that we would feel for the world that you feel, that we would see the world the way that you see the world, and that we would touch the world, God, in the way that Jesus touched it, to show and demonstrate in practical ways his love and how it can undo the darkness that sin produces. God, would you help us as people by the power of your spirit to bear fruit, God, that our lives would stand out in the darkness that's around where people would see the reality of truth being lived out by your people. But God, would you, as we go into all the places that you would take us, would you allow the beauty of what you've done in us as we proclaim the hope of Jesus to be seen, that there would be weight, that there would be power, that there would be authority that would pierce hearts and bring people to a place of saying, how do I know this God of love for myself? God, we have nothing other than hearts that have been opened by faith to say, do in us what only you can do, but do for us what will bring glory back to you. God, we need you. Can you just tell him right now how much you need him? I've been praying, but would you open your heart? Would you begin to cry out, Jesus, help me. Do you not see your need? Do you not feel your own desperation? God, this isn't melodrama. The reason you've put us on this mission is because eternity is at stake. Life here and now, but God, this is but a blink. God, help us to live for eternity. Help us to live with an alertness and a sobriety that we can touch lives and proclaim Jesus in the worlds that you've called us to. We trust you to do these things, God. We trust you to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I pray that this week you'd be faithful. We've done our part, we've prayed, but now in faith we have to act. I pray that if you, especially if you stood, that you would ask God to lead you to someone this week, whether they're here in the city, somewhere around the country, somebody in the grocery store, somebody on the train, that God would lead you and give you divine appointments, those works that he set you apart to do that he would lead you, that you might do your part, that you might help fulfill the mission that he's called you to. Can you say amen to that in faith? Amen. Now, before you leave, would you give somebody a hug? Come back Tuesday night. We're going to continue to wait on God. We're going to continue to put ourselves in a position so that our hearts can be stirred for eternal things. God bless you.